What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today we're talking with another author about such an amazing book. But before I introduce him and this conversation, uh, if you're just tuning in, to this episode. This is the last episode of the week where we've been talking about psychology and mental health and all that. So make sure you check out the previous episodes of this week. We had some great conversations with people like David Buss, Randy Nessie, uh, Lucy Falks, and Jay Van Bavel about their books. And we covered evolutionary psychology and mental health and group psychology and all that. Well, today to wrap up the week, we're talking with Alan Francis. All right. So if you don't know who Alan Francis is, he was actually on the committee for the DSM four. All right. And he wrote a book called saving normal. So those of you who have been around for a long time, you know, that, you know, my YouTube channel, that's where I primarily grew. And a lot of you found me, it was centered around mental health, addiction, recovery, and all of that. And yeah, you know, I, I learned about, you know, DSM diagnoses and all sorts of stuff. And my, my goal was to educate people. And one of the issues, you know, that I saw was that we didn't talk about mental health enough. Well, uh, even prior to getting canceled on YouTube, something I noticed and I even got backlash for was discussing how, you know, like, even though mental health is definitely an issue and we need to, you know, treat people and diagnose people, there's also some areas where we overdiagnose people and we over-medicate people and people would get pissed, right? Like, for example, there is an issue with over medicating, uh, you know, in, in the world of, of pain management, I was a prescription opioid addict. And that's one of the reasons I'm very passionate about this, but you could see that we over medicate with, uh, medications like Xanax or, uh, stimulants like, uh, Adderall and Ritalin. And this isn't to say that people don't struggle with anxiety or ADHD, but when we're just throwing these medications out all willy nilly, we need to take a step back. Well, anyways, uh, when I was trying to figure out what was going on, I came across Alan Francis' book, Saving Normal, and he was there, you know, and kind of saw this sort of civil war, as he describes it, starting within the psychiatric community while making the DSM. And, you know, he ref in his book, he reflects on some of the mistakes they made, but he also sees the major issues with the DSM-5. And in his book, you know, like the title says, he talks about saving normal. And there's so many different subjective diagnoses where we could technically diagnose with anybody with anything. So in this conversation, I'm so glad to have him on. I, I just recently read his book for a second time. But, you know, we talk about the overdiagnosis issues, uh, the issues with the DSM. Uh, we talk about, you know, uh, primary care doctors, uh, you know, prescribing psychiatric drugs. Um, I asked him if he really thinks mental health rates are on the rise or if this has something to do with uh, the diagnosis problem. But Alan also sees issues with the mental health care system as a whole. And he has some great suggestions for some solutions that we should really be aware of if we hope to really help people who are legitimately struggling with mental illness. But part of the conversation we have, almost like the conversation I had the other day with Randy Nessie is, we do need to acknowledge when some of these symptoms are 
1000% normal. All right. So head down to the description, make sure you're following Alan over on Twitter and grab a copy of Saving Normal. Like I said, it, it completely changed the way I see the mental health system, how we diagnose and all that stuff. So make sure you grab a copy. And while you're down in the description, make sure you are following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I love chatting with all of you. And this way, you know what books I'm reading, upcoming episodes, and some other projects that I'm working on. I've been writing a lot lately. So make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Alan Francis about his book, Saving Normal. And do me a favor, if you enjoy this episode or if you're not yet, just make sure you're following or subscribe to the podcast. All right. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alan Francis. All right. Hello, Alan. How are you doing today? Well, good morning and thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on. I just finished my second read of Saving Normal. Loved it just as much as the first time. And for those who are unfamiliar with your work, can you, can you give a little bit of your background of what led you to writing this book, Saving Normal? Well, okay. I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist and I've done a lot of clinical work during my years, but also I was in charge of the DSM-4 task force that was uh, had the, the goal of creating a, the diagnostic system for psychiatry. Mm. And we were trying to be very conservative. We were concerned about the fact that more and more people were being diagnosed and very often given medication that they didn't need. And so we tried to protect the system from expanding. It's so easy because there aren't clear boundaries between normality and mental illness. Mm -hmm. It's easy to take everyday aches and pains, emotional aches and pains of life and think that this is psychiatric disorder. Mm -hmm. And when I, we did DSM-4, we thought we had been successful in creating um, some barrier towards the excessive diagnosis of people and they're getting way too much medication. But it turned out that there were three epidemics that followed the publication of DSM-4. This is going back 25 years that even though we wanted to protect people from being overdiagnosed. Many people were being overdiagnosed with autistic disorders. Mm -hmm. Many kids were being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. The um, tension deficit disorder just went crazy. Yeah. So we, when we published DSM-4 in 1994, three or 4% of kids were getting the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. And now it's over 12%. Mm -hmm. What we noticed was that the, um, ease with which doctors could give diagnosis. The fact that it's so easy to prescribe medication, it's the easiest way to get the patient out of the office is you write a script. Mm -hmm. It led to a, a tremendous um, carelessness in considering who really needed to, to get diagnosed, who really needed medication and who didn't. And so the book Saving Normal was saying in effect that un unless we're more careful about diagnosis, everyone's gonna be sick. Everyone's gonna be on medication. Yeah. And it's almost like that now. The 20, 25% of the population is taking a psychotropic drug. Mm -hmm. Relabeled the normal emotions, grief, disappointment. Um, yeah. Here with COVID, it's perfectly normal to be yeah. afraid with COVID. If a person's not afraid with COVID, doesn't wear a mask, doesn't get vaccinated, that's abnormal. That's dangerous. Yeah. People who are afraid in this situation are reasonable. 
Uh, so the, the idea of the book was to try to relabel as normal many things that have been carelessly labeled a psychiatric disorder and to try to get people to be more cautious in accepting a diagnosis and more cautious in accepting a, a prescription for medication. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's interesting. Just the other day, uh, I, I had a conversation with Randy Nessie about, you know, evolutionary psychology and his book, you know, uh, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings and all that. And, you know, uh, uh, when I when I got sober and I started trying to work on my own depression and anxiety symptoms and things like that, a lot of it was just, you know, there's something you discuss in your book, too, is like a lot of this, it just takes time, right? Like some of it just takes time and we're going to adapt. We're going to change like the anxiety of COVID, for example, was extremely high in the beginning. And over time, we start to kind of it starts to level out a little bit because we're we're very resilient people. But in the book, you kind of lay out a, a, a few different factors. And I'm curious like if you if if you think any are worse than others, but you talk about like big pharma, you talk about you know kind of like uh, fad diagnoses and things like that. And uh, a, a good side note is my drug of choice was prescription medications, right? So I could relate a lot to when you were talking about how easy it is to get these medications. So. Uh, you know, I educated myself about all the money from big pharma and the government and, you know, and doctors and all this other stuff. But so do you think it's, do you think it's more like, uh, uh, like physicians, therapists, or do you think it's big pharma or policy, or is it just everything's all lumped together? Yeah, the, the overdiagnosis and overmedication is a perfect storm with lots of wind currents joining together to form a hurricane. Mm. So like the important to know, especially for anyone listening to this who, who has any kind of upset about their life, that 80% of psychiatric drugs are given by primary care doctors. And usually that's done after a 10-minute appointment. The, the reason we had an opioid epidemic, the drug companies were absolutely criminal and the executives should be in jail, but there had to be doctors writing the prescriptions. And often they were writing the prescriptions without knowing the person. Mm -hmm. They were throwing people on pain medication who would be high risk to go on to have an addiction to opioids. The um, benzodiazepines, Xanax-type drugs, are horribly over overused in this country. 4% of our population takes a benzodiazepine. 8% of elderly people do. And for elderly people, it can be a death sentence. Oh, yeah. Because it causes confusion, falls, memory loss. We're over-medicating people in general. And the person going to a doctor has to be cautious that they won't get a brush off because doctors don't have time. Mm -hmm. And the easiest thing for the doctor to do is write a prescription, get you out of the office happy. Yeah. We have about eight, maybe seven, eight percent of our kids are, are getting stimulant drugs. Mm -hmm. um, fake, mostly for fake ADHD. Yeah. Now, one of the most fascinating things in the world is that the youngest kid in the classroom is twice as likely as the oldest kid in the classroom to get a diagnosis of ADHD. Much more likely to get on medication. So we're turning immaturity into a disease. Mm -hmm. I guess the point for, for if you're a potential patient, patient is don't assume that every diagnostic recommendation or every medication recommendation makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. Doctors will always be overly enthusiastic about the benefits and very reticent to discuss the harms and risks yeah they're they're boosters for their treatment and so i think people need to be more cautious than doctors are in thinking about 
starting medication. And the prescription drug, I mean, you can become as easily addicted to a prescription drug like Xanax or Oxycontin as a street drug. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the beginning, the first benzodiazepine you're taking it seems fine for the first week, but it can ruin the rest of your life. Once you're on it, very hard to get off it. Yeah. Oxycontin relieves that pain, terrific. But you may be buying a few days of relief along with many, many years of suffering and possible overdose. Mm-hmm. Our, our numbers of overdoses have gone up to 93,000. And most of the increases in fentanyl overdoses, and most of that is caused by people who started with prescription Oxycontin, becomes too expensive. Street drugs are a lot cheaper now. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not just street drugs that can be addicting. It's also prescription drugs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's so difficult, I think, for the average person, which is why I talk about it so much, because as somebody who was abusing prescription drugs, and I never really had good relationships with doctors in the first place. When I got sober, I had to really start keep taking care of my health, right? I was 27. I had congestive heart failure. I was a mess. I was like dying. So I had to go see a lot of doctors, but I've had to learn like, you know, not all doctors are, you know, taking their time and listening and all that. Uh, when I was about two years sober, I got into a car accident. And even though I said, hey, I'm a recovering opioid addict, I can't have any opioids. He tried to prescribe me opioids about three or four times and then sent me off with a prescription for them. And it really just kind of showed me like doctors are people too. And that's why we have to do our own kind of questioning and due diligence. But when you talk about like kids, I think that's when I really got interested in this topic and grabbed a copy of your book was uh, I know a kid who's uh, very neglected at home. So he has a lot of attention seeking behavior, which can turn into acting out. But because of that, his parents are like, I think he might have ADHD. We need to get a medication. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. This kid is clearly just trying to get attention, you know? So something I, I'd love to know your thoughts on is, and I'm sure you've noticed this too in the news and everything, we're constantly talking about the rise in rates of mental illness, right? They're showing, hey, the world is bad because more people are depressed, more people are anxious. All these people are taking these medications. Clearly, the world is getting worse. And, you know, there's there's things going on. But do you think that we shouldn't be necessarily looking at these statistics and numbers because we have a problem with overdiagnosing people? So it's not really true numbers. You know, there's no question about that. There's a systematic bias in all of epide- epidemiology and psychiatry that the uh, studies are done by telephone. They're not done by you know, clinical interview. Mm. And it's self-report, and you ask people a bunch of symptoms, but you don't know whether it's how severe they are. And so the tendency is to accept that face value that people, people have psychiatric disorders when, in fact, the symptoms they're feeling may be perfectly logical. So anyone, again, not lonely during COVID, that would be crazy not to be lonely, not scared. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. Not to be sad, losing the loved ones, seeing people around you suffering. Mm-hmm. This isn't mental disorder. So the tendency to exaggerate the um, symptoms of everyday life, to act like there's a pill for every problem. The drug companies have tremendously influenced this. They sell illness as a way of selling pills, sell the mm-hmm. illness and sell the pill. And insurance companies pay doctors for prescribing meds. They don't pay doctors for listening to patients. Very rarely is there a doctor who knows you, who spent time with you, who understands the context in which you're having the symptoms. Mm -hmm. You have any symptom and boom, there's a prescription. 
So I guess the major message, one major message, half of the major message of saving normal is that we have to trust people and trust time and trust watchful waiting, um, expectations, hope and resiliency to deal with most of the problems of everyday life, not label them as mental disorder, not treat them with a pill. On the other hand, the people who do have real psychiatric disorder in our country are terribly neglected. Yeah. We now have 350,000 patients in prisons. Mm-hmm. The prison system is the biggest uh, deliverer of psychiatric care in the country. 250,000 are homeless. Mm. There's this terrible disconnect between taking too much care, harmful care, people are pretty well, and neglecting, shamefully neglecting people are really sick. Yeah. The Biden infrastructure bill is very ambitious and wonderful in every way. It completely ignores mental illness. There's not one mention of the mentally ill. For the last 60 years, we've systematically dismantled care for the mentally ill. We closed the terrible state hospitals 60 years ago, and the idea was the money would go for community treatment of people who were severely ill. But those programs were closed by Reagan in the 80s. Mm. People with severe mental illness often have nowhere to go, no, no decent housing, no treatment. They wind up living on the streets, they get arrested. Cops know that there's no psychiatric treatment, so they just bring them to jail. Yeah. Once in jail, they start smearing crap all over their cells because they go crazier and crazier in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. They stay in jail longer than the average person. So we have a situation where we've criminalized mental illness. We've neglected the people who really need treatment. On the other hand, we've trivialized the psychiatric diagnosis so that people who are just having normal experiences acting like treated like they have psychiatric problems. Mm-hmm. The system is completely misallocating our resources. And the Biden bill doesn't even mention it. It's yeah. self-injury that it's building up every conceivable infrastructure in the country. And that's a good thing. But the one infrastructure that's most lacking in our country is a mental health infrastructure. It's been defunded for 60 years. And no one has mentioned this as part of the obligation we mm-hmm. have to, to do right by people who are the most vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do a great job covering that uh, in your book too. Like uh, also like how we're wasting time and resources fighting this drug war in the wrong place, rather than looking at the overprescribing of all these medications and, and all these other things. Cause it's something I've noticed too, like aside from mental health, like addiction treatment and a lot of people who become addicted are, you know, self-medicating and so many things like that, because I was working in a dual diagnosis treatment center where people were dealing with, you know, both at many occasions, but uh, yeah, when these bills come through we're not seeing much of that but what's interesting and i think this is why you you bring up why this is such an important conversation so many people are saying that they have depression or they have anxiety or they have you know even like ocd or bipolar for very normal behavior so it's kind of diluting what those are and that's taking the focus off of the people who are legitimately mentally ill but i don't i I don't know if you've had this experience, but I'm sure you have. When I started talking about this to audiences on my YouTube channel, I got a ton of backlash, right? Like, you don't know, we like, we need, we need Ritalin. We need Adderall. We need Prozac. Like people with the diagnosis get very defensive. And I've noticed it's, it's hard to kind of break that, that kind of spell that, that's been cast upon them that everybody's mentally ill and they need medication. So have you received that backlash when you first started kind of addressing this stuff and how do you kind of deal with it and push forward? Well, 
it's an excellent question. I actually haven't surprisingly received that much backlash, but I think that a good diagnosis is a wonderful moment in a person's life. Mm-hmm. Previously, you haven't understood what's bothering you. You feel you're uniquely damned. I'm the only one who has this. And if you get an accurate diagnosis, it puts things into perspective. It gives hope. There's some people understand what I have. I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And there's a good treatment for it. A wrong diagnosis creates stigma. It reduces your sense of expectation of what you can accomplish. It reduces the way other people, what other people think you can do, changes the way they see you. Mm-hmm. And often leads to medication that will do more harm than good. I think that more and more people are realizing this is not just psychiatry. It's across many medical specialties that we've over-treated people with milder conditions while neglecting people with the more severe conditions. And I think for, that for many people, it's going to be an adjustment to realize that it may be better for them to lead a life less dependent on medication. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that there's tremendous, there's a population of hundreds of thousands of people who are hooked on benzos and who are very aware of how terrible, once you're on a benzodiazepine, in, in a high enough dose, and it's very close to what a therapeutic dose would be, almost impossible to get off, very, very difficult to get off. Yeah. It may take months, years sometimes. It's easy to prescribe a pill. It's very hard to de-prescribe. It's easy yeah. to start a medication. Xanax seems so much fun at the beginning, so helpful, so relaxing. But then once you're on it, it's almost impossible to stop with having much worse symptoms than you ever had before because mm-hmm. withdrawal will be worse than any symptoms you've ever had. It's very hard to perceive a life without benzos once you've been on benzos for any period of time. It's hard to change gears. Yeah. It's very hard. You need to do it under medical supervision. People can't stop these medicines. The um, antidepressants have much less of a withdrawal problem, but a significant one. The stimulants... Not easy to stop a stimulant. You probably know that from your own experience. But I think it, it's very important for people not to do anything different after they hear us talking today. Yeah. No one should stop their medicine. Yeah. It, yeah, for it, sure. It'll get worse. The medicines, many of them will have withdrawal symptoms. But it's worthwhile to sort of appraise where you are, get second opinions. And if it feels like you've been overtreated in the past, to figure out a very gradual way under supervision to get off medicines mm-hmm. that may at this point be doing more harm than good. Yeah. I want to pick up one other point though about the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. War on drugs, we've been fighting for 50 years since Nixon started it in 1972. We have lost every single battle. Yeah. The war on drugs is worse than the war in, in Afghanistan in terms of the result. We've lost every single battle and everything we've done has made things worse. Mm-hmm. There's been no worse time in the world than now to have a drug problem. There's no more dangerous moment in anyone's life ever than to go buy a pill on the street now. Mm-hmm. Pills are laced with fentanyl. Yeah. Fentanyl is the most powerful, well, it's not the most, but it's one of the most powerful, most killing drugs we've ever known. It's very cheap. You can, you can kill all of New Jersey with a suitcase full of fentanyl if you divide mm-hmm. it up. And so anyone who buys a pill on the street that's labeled MDMA or whatever it's labeled, it could very likely have fentanyl in it. Mm-hmm. That's why our overdoses have, have jumped to 93,000. What we should have been doing all along, should do now, is legalize all drugs, monitor them. When people buy a, a drug, they should know what they're getting. And we should make them so cheap that it drives the drug cartel out of business. 
Yeah. I, I definitely most, like that. Most of the problem comes from the fact that the cartels are controlling the drug supply. Yeah. The drugs aren't benign. I don't want everyone to be addicted. But the worst thing, worst of all possible situations is to have millions of people in the United States addicted and the drug cartels being the supplier. Mm-hmm. Unreliable doses, it, it promotes crime. We should be treating using harm reduction, using Suboxone and other ways of helping people to deal with their addiction rather than trying to interdict at the border, which was always foolish. And now it's, it's, it's criminally stupid because <laughs> federal can come across in a suitcase. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, yeah, there's so, so much there, but this is something that, you know, I've, I've recently had a few guests on my guide. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of like Maya Slozovitz. Uh, she just wrote uh, her book on harm reduction and uh, she was on here not lo- that long ago, but yeah, a- absolutely. And I don't think like people understand the dependence that happens, especially with benzos. And like you said, it could take weeks, months, or even years. Like I, I, you know, working in the the treatment facility, we had a detox there, and then people would transition to uh, inpatient and then outpatient. And I, I saw people having seizures week weeks after. They stopped using because of what happened. And and as you mentioned, too, this is something I try to talk with my audience about all the time, because I started on Lexapro and uh, uh, then switched to Prozac. But my overall goal was to hopefully not need medications like that. Right. So with my doctor's supervision, I have weaned off and then. If it flares back up, I'll get back on. But the goal is to wean back off. You know what I mean? But it's always communicating with my doctor. I talk with my girlfriend and say, hey, let me know if I start getting a little weird, if there's any side effects because I might not notice and and all of that. And yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult because uh, as you mentioned in the book, towards the end, you talk about a lot of stories where medications have helped people, right? You talk about, you know, people who had bipolar and, you know, they were given medications and, and it's, it's this real case by case basis. And it's not so black and white, but people need to be aware of it. And I, I guess my question for you is what are you go over this great in the book, but what are some like things a person should do? Like if they, if they feel that they are struggling with a legitimate disorder like should it be a psychiatrist how do they know it's a good one like what would you what would you recommend they look for in a good psychiatrist or psychologist well it's really tough because it's hard to find any psychiatrist psychologist these days yeah insurance coverage is not fairly given to to mental health problems i think the most important thing in um, a treatment working is a good relationship between the doctor and the patient and if people have the resources i i recommend that they not Go to one person and decide, ah, that's the person for me. It's a good idea if you can, if the people are available and you can afford it or your insurance will pay for it, to see several people, mm. pick the one who you have a, a chemistry fit with. The, the, the impact of therapy, whether it's medication therapy or psychotherapy, is much more likely to be favorable if the two of you click. Yeah. If you're working together for the same goals. If the doc can explain in simple language what he thinks the diagnosis is and bring you in as part of the discussion, these are the possibilities diagnostically, these are the alternative treatments. It shouldn't be a doctor tells you this or tells you that and you do it. It should be a shared decision-making process, information gathering process where you're both learning from each other. Yeah. If you had faith in the the process, it's much more likely to work. I think that the, the tragedy in our situation is that the people who are so severely ill, often by virtue of lacking resources, the public is not providing treatment centers. 
it's rare to have a, a, a program for addictions. You were lucky to be able to work in one because they're so rare these days. Yeah. They're not getting the opportunity to get the medication they need. Mm -hmm. What you said is crucially important. No one size fits all. So some people give medication to everyone they see. Some doctors, everyone, if you have a hammer, you're using, everything looks like a nail. Yep. On the other hand, there are some people who say no one should get medication. Mm. Both of those are equally extreme <laughs> and dangerous positions. You yeah. need to be much more discriminating who, who gets medication. Make sure the people who need it do get it. And make sure that people who don't need it have the opportunity for watchful waiting, advice, um, parent training when it comes to kids, mm. maybe school teacher training when it comes to kids who are having trouble in school. Um, psychotherapy is much more uh, effective and uh, efficient for people with mild problems than medication. So if someone has a mild problem or to a moderate problem, psycho psychotherapy first, time and then psychotherapy first. Mm -hmm. Medication is a last resort. On the other hand, if someone has a severe problem, they need medication right away. And we should be providing the treatment resources so that there aren't two months waiting lists in which all sorts of things can happen. They can wind up in jail or they can wind up homeless or yeah. they can wind up dead. Yeah. It turns out that severely ill, mentally ill pa patients had three times the rate of COVID deaths as the general population. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, say one more thing. They died 20 years early. People with severe mental illness oh, wow. died 20 years early. A large part of this is because they get lousy medical care and lousy psychiatric care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a healthcare issue. The the treatment center I was working at was a very high end, expensive one that only the best insurance plans got you in. And you know, uh, I'm out here in Las Vegas, and currently my girlfriend she's in her master's program for social work, and you know, uh, we look at resources and stuff like that for some of the work she's doing, and we try to help out in the community. But yeah, these wait lists and the lack of like uh, healthcare, it's 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 really difficult for the people with legitimate, really difficult problems, even people with addictions as well, to get any sort of treatment. But meanwhile, we're just throwing medications and stuff like that at people who do have access or money or or what have you. And and yeah, kind of like you said too, psychotherapy. I I can't I I don't think I could explain to people enough how much learning about like cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy and all these other things were like the biggest benefits to my mental health. Right, changing thought patterns and catching thoughts and all these other things. Um, but I I have a couple more quick questions for you, Alan. Well, hopefully it's quick. But uh, we chatted about this on on Twitter the other day, but. You, you mentioned multiple personality disorder in the book or dissociative identity disorder. And long story short, I got a ton of backlash for talking about how it doesn't seem like there's like legitimate evidence around this disorder. And it seems like a lot of the psychologists diagnosing it are kind of in this like fad, like that's their specialty. And, you know, um, can you kind of talk about uh, your, like what the research says around dissociative identity disorder? Is it some, is it actually something else or, or what do you think is causing this rise or, or why people are thinking they have it? Yeah, this is one area where you do get backlash from people who identify <laughs> with the disorder. Yeah. Certainly I have. The idea of multiple personalities goes back forever, um, but it became especially, it becomes popular at particular times. Mm. So it became very popular in the 1890s here in Europe. A couple of case reports were reported and then 
psychologists and psychiatrists started seeing it, then it died away completely. In the 50s, there was a book called The Three Faces of Eve that was very mm -hmm. popular. And for a short period after the book appeared, and especially after the movie appeared, it seemed like all of a sudden there was an outbreak of multiple personality disorder. Sybil really set the uh, tone. It was uh, written in 73. There was two movies were based on the novel Sybil. It, it described, <laughs> supposedly described the relationship between a, a psychiatrist and her patient in which she developed more and more personalities. Very vivid description. Turned out the book was a fraud. That the uh, author and the psychiatrist collaborated together, made up a lot of the story. When people actually met the patient, she was very different than what was described in the book. But it was very dramatic. And all of a sudden, there was a, 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 a explosion of multiple personality disorder that starting in, in the 70s and going until about the late 90s, it became one of the most common diagnoses. One out of every three patients would have multiple personalities. Mm -hmm. One patient in North Carolina who had 162 personalities. They were all ages, both genders. Uh, some, some of them um, were existed before she was born. There were multiple personalities that before she was born had come out. There was a competition on the internet who could have the most multiple. Yep. Um, it became a very close-knit community. And it's very understandable. Human distress is something that confuses us and scares us. And different periods have different ways of explaining that distress. A diagnostic, diagnostic label gives you a sense of control where previously there was a, a feeling of chaos and lack of control. So for some people, multiple personalities are a way of explaining their internal conflicts, the fact that they like certain things and dislike other things, that they sometimes act one way, other times they act another way, that they have psych, psychic conflicts. Putting a name on each feeling is a way of explaining yourself to yourself. Mm-hmm. And therapists would tend to go to work. They'd see the movie, they'd go to a workshop, and all of a sudden, again, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. They would start being able to see per separate personalities where before they might have seen the complexity of one individual's personality. And they started dividing people into different small, smaller mm. parts, giving a name to different feelings, to different emotions. And what this did was give people the sense of an explanation. The trouble was it often made people worse rather than better. So it, instead of improving lives, finding, naming different personalities tended to cause more trouble in, in people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, it created tremendous problems within families, battles within families. Um, why did it die? It died in, at the end of um, the, the 1900s, 1996, 1997. Partly there were lawsuits against the psychologists and psychiatrists that were producing the personalities. Um, and some, I think one, one judgment was $11 million against mm. them. And word spread that you could get in trouble for making people feel like they had multiple personalities. The other was insurance not paying for it. And so from they, from there are tons of papers and, you know, tens of thousands of patients produced from the time of Sybil to the late nineties. And now it's died off. There's still some people, a small residual a group of people who feel that they have multiple personalities. It's not the most popular diagnosis anymore. Now, if someone comes up with a really popular movie, or if there's a thought leader in the field who suddenly attains, you know, charismatic thought leader who gives workshops all around the country and convinces people that multiple personality is an important diagnosis that's being missed, will it come back in the future? 
the past as predictor of the future says that we're going to have outbursts of multiple personality periodically over time mm-hmm. when it becomes a popular fad diagnosis and then it dies off. Now, human nature is remarkably stable. Human beings are probably not that much different now than we were 100,000 years ago. But diagnostic labels are very easy to change over time. And so multiple personality is a classic case of a fad diagnosis. Now, if someone has that diagnosis, they may be very insulted because they built their identity around it. Yeah. And told that it's, it's exaggerated. It's something that um, probably they got through the therapeutic relationship. And that there's a different way of understanding problems than by labeling each feeling you have as a separate person. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I noticed it on, on YouTube and it, it gets a lot of views and people are making a lot of money for making videos about, uh, meet my alters and switching and all these other things. And, and yeah, kind of like what we were just discussing earlier, it kind of dilutes the people who really need help. If people aren't looking at it critically, asking questions, what do the, what do the research say, or what does the research say? And, uh, you know, do, do these things add up and all this. So, so yeah, it's just one of the reasons why I care about it because it's like, okay, well, something else might be going on and maybe, yeah, we are trying to label our feelings and all that. Um, but, but yeah, I see, like you mentioned, I see it pop up and, and there's, there's different things. There were, there was even a convention around dissociative identity disorder that I think got canceled just right be- because COVID hit, but, but yeah. So if you ever want to chat about that and I'll send you some resources on the side, but, um, Alan, I got, I got one last question for you. I'm just uh, curious if, if there was one main solution that, that we should focus on, like you mentioned, like a different diagnostic system, maybe using numbers instead of, uh, you know, diagnosing disorders or, you know, should it be, uh, people becoming more educated? What's, uh, or, or is it a DSM six where they knock out like half the disorders in there? Like what is a good starting place so we can start getting, you know, working on some of these issues. There are two, this isn't rocket science, there are two <laughs> very obvious solutions that would tremendously improve the mental health. Well, three, maybe that would tremendously improve the mental health of the country. The first thing is that we rebuild a mental health infrastructure. So the people who are severely ill get the treatment they need and get decent housing and social service help. So they don't wind up jail, jailed or homeless. Simple. Yeah. We had this, we had one of the best systems in the world. In, in the 60s and 70s, it was destroyed by Reagan in, in um, austerity programs. And, and what happened was we knocked out mental health and now the people are in prisons. Mm-hmm. We took people who were institutionalized in bad psychiatric hospitals and put them in much worse, more expensive prisons. Mm-hmm. So we need to get back to having community treatment and affordable housing for the severely ill. For the people who are being overtreated with medication and don't need it, docs need to spend more time with patients. Mm. It's more important to know the patient who has the disease than the disease the patient has. That was said by Hippocrates 2,500 years ago. If docs spend more time with patients, they won't give medicine so carelessly. And then the third thing is there are societal problems that are very responsible for the mental health difficulties of of the members of that society. Uh, Unemployment results in increased suicide rates. We Mm -hmm. wanted to reduce our suicide rate. The single best thing you would do would be to um, make sure that people weren't unemployed or give them a safety net when they lose their jobs. Poverty, inequality, racism, misogyny, um, all of these things are very bad for a nation's total mental health. 
the happiest countries in the world aren't necessarily the richest. Yeah. The fairest, where there's a fair distribution of resources. Mm-hmm. Our society will never be a fully happy society so long as things are so unequally distributed and life is so unfair for so many people. Yeah. Yeah, no, very, very well said. And all those things lead to feeling anxious or feeling sad and, you know, and all these other things. Uh, but yeah, Alan, thank you so much. I'm so glad that like it's your book was so eye opening to me. And I really hope everybody grabs a copy. And I just realized you wrote another book uh, recently during the Trump years. But but yeah, uh, before I let you go, uh, I'm going to link your Twitter down below. You're very you're pretty active on there and giving updates and your thoughts and opinions on stuff. But is there anything else you're working on? Any, any, you got any more books in yet or, or what's coming up? I think I'm down to 140 characters at a time. <laughs> That'll do it. Beautiful. Well, well, I, that it's more than enough for me, Alan. So I'll keep following you on Twitter, but yeah, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody. That was my conversation with the awesome Alan Francis. And I hope you all kind of, you know, uh, took something away from that and are able to kind of look at, you know, the the current state of mental health and mental illness, uh, you know, in a different way. And this is some stuff that we talked about with Lucy Folks the other day, like mental health is messy. And none of this is to say that, you know, people don't have mental illness or it is a myth. You're talking with a guy who's been on antidepressants for years. You know what I mean? So I, I do know from personal experience and just a family history that these are issues. But as Alan discussed, some of this, uh, the issues with over-medicating and over-diagnosing is taking away from the resources we have available to help people with, uh, you know, legitimate or even severe psychiatric disorders. All right. So, so I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please, please, please head down to the description, make sure you are following Alan and grab a copy of his book, Saving Normal. All right. But yeah, if you're not yet, down in the description below, you can follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I have been uploading a lot of these uh, episodes to The Rewired Soul YouTube channel as well. All of the episodes from this week will be going up on the YouTube channel next week if you would like to see uh, the beautiful faces of my guests as well as myself. So you can subscribe over there. And yeah, if you want to support the podcast, if you enjoy what I'm doing here, if you like these conversations with authors, here are a few really easy completely free ways to help out. All right. Uh, first, I mentioned it before the episode started. Make sure you are following and or subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on Spotify, Apple, whatever. But two other things that help out a ton is one, if you enjoy this conversation, share it, share it on social media. If you think some people should be more aware of the state of, you know, how we're diagnosing mental illness, share this over on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever that helps out a ton. Secondly, if you could take two seconds, two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. All this kind of stuff really helps out with the algorithms to push the podcast out to more people and grow this lovely community. All right. But uh, a few other ways to support the podcast, if you're interested, uh, I have self-published some books on mental health, such as, you know, rewire your anxiety, rewire your anger. I've also written on addiction and uh, recovery and helping loved ones. Those books are available at therewiredsoul.com. You can also become a patron. And if you're someone like me who is actively working on your mental health, there is an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right. So like I said, you know, uh, there are people with legitimate illnesses and 
and here's the thing, even if you don't have a diagnosable disorder, therapy is extremely beneficial and BetterHelp is a service that I've personally used. So if you're interested, check out the affiliate link down below. It's online, it's affordable, and you work with a licensed therapist. So check it out. All right. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed this week of uh, talking about, you know, different areas of psychology and mental health. And we have a ton of new episodes coming up. I think I'm actually going to be uploading this weekend, a little bit more catch up. And, and yeah, it's going to be really fun. So make sure that you stay tuned. All right. So have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.